If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. We've been walking through Ephesians, and um, I'm running out of time because we start a new series uh, at the 1st of September, so um, it'll be a little more accelerated through these last two parts of the, uh, of the book in chapter 5 and chapter 6, but I hope to give you something that will, uh, will challenge you and maybe challenge some of your preconceptions about God about what he's like, and about how we are called to reflect him. In 2004, just a few years ago, a city council in Monza, Italy, uh, wrote a law that barred these. This became, I am holding an Italian illegal object right here in my hands, so now you know that your, your pastor is a lawbreaker, even though I think they're legal here since I just bought it yesterday in the Czech Republic. Uh, and it wasn't like on a street, back corner or anything, so I bought it in a, a regular pet store. But in the city of Monza, Italy, and also in the city of Rome, these are illegal. Because they passed a law saying that it was cruel to have goldfish live in a container that distorted their vision of reality. Okay? Because you see, what happened was, when you're looking from the inside of the bowl out it distorts your view of the world. In fact, in some ways, it even turns it upside down. Reality is not what you see. In fact, uh, the great physicist um, Stephen Hawking commented on this law, and, and he, said, he said this, the goldfish view is not the same as our own, but goldfish could still formulate scientific laws governing the motion of objects they observe outside their bowl. For example, due to the distortion, a freely moving object would be observed by the goldfish to move along a curved path. But here's what it really looks like. The next picture that I have for the slides will show you what the goldfish really sees, okay? <laughs> it's, it's scary for the goldfish because you're just like, man, the world is bad out there, right? He's just waiting for me to get a little too close to the surface, and that cat's going to reach in and grab him. Well... The reason I use this little example is simply this. How do we know that our view of reality is not distorted? More importantly, how do we know that our view of God is not distorted? Because the truth is, we all have a worldview and we have a God view. But what have you based that view on? What is the truths that you're building your life on, and do they reflect reality? That's the question we want to look at as we explore this here in this passage today. Because here's the thing, to get an accurate view of God, we need to look at what he says about himself rather than what we think about him. Here's a truth I want you to remember. God is not who, excuse me, start over again. God is who he says he is not what we think he is. God is who he says he is, not what we think he is. What he says in more, is more important than what we think. So we want to begin by asking the Lord to show us the distortions in our own view of our view of him, of what he's like. And the reason that I bring up that distortion is because today in our passage that we're going to explore in Ephesians chapter 5, it talks about human relationships. 
and it mentions three specific types of human relationships in chapter five and, in, and also in chapter six, because it's all part of the same passage, the same thought pattern. It mentions marriage, parenting, and master and servant relationships. And from each one of those relationships, we get a view, a picture of what God is like in his relationship with us. But the truth is, for many of us, our experience in those human relationships, if we took God simply from what we've experienced in those relationships, it would result in a distorted view. We would be just like that goldfish who's having to look out of a curved bowl and seeing an inaccurate picture of God, of what he's like. Distorted human relationships often lead to distorted views of God. Maybe you have been in an abusive or an unfaithful marriage or had either an overbearing or or an absent father. Perhaps you suffered unjustly under a boss who was so insecure that he he oppressed those who worked for him. These distortions can cause a distortion in our view of God's design, and more importantly, it can distort our view of who he truly is and how he relates to us. This is ultimately why it is important that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, seek to honor the Lord in our relationships. A huge part of obedience is living in the way that God instructs us to live so that we project an accurate picture or at least as accurate as we are able to of what God is like. For me as a husband, far more important than um, just being faithful to my wife is for me to love her in such a way that she sees at least a small portion of how Christ loves the church. That's my responsibility. As a father, it's my responsibility to show at least a glimpse of God's father heart for us to my children. As an employer, it's my responsibility to treat people with honor, with respect, to invest in them, to build them up in the same way that our Lord invests in us and builds us up. Each of those relationships are incredibly important. So let's begin to look at it. And I'm gonna gonna make sure that you understand that this is the central subject of this passage by starting in chapter five, verse 31 and 32. Here's what he says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And if you've been married, you would agree. This mystery is profound. And I am saying, that, that was an insert, by the way. That's not what the scripture says. It's just my commentary. But here's what he says. Here's what the Apostle Paul, writing this letter, says. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The key point of this passage isn't instructions about how we are to pursue human relationships, whether it's husbands and wives or parents and children or um, employers and employees. It's about God. He is the central focus because we need to understand that ultimately this book that we've been given is a love letter that is God revealing himself to us in every aspect. 
He wants us to see what he is like and to have an accurate view of him. For a follower of Jesus Christ, our human relationships are designed to be parables that we live that point others to an accurate view of God and his love for his people. A parable is a story. You and I are called to live in such a way so that others see Jesus through our lives and through our relationships. So let's go back and let's look at this in context, where we've been for a a while. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, last week, we looked at verses 18 through 21, and we we saw that there were several things that are the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit, that we encourage one another, that we um, have a heart of worship, that we have a heart of thanksgiving, and that we submit to one another. There is a mutual submission. Now, we can't take the next verse out of context of what we just read. In many of our Bibles, there will be a header that is inserted in there to help us find different sections and passages. Um, And those headers can be really, really helpful, a title across the top. But those are not things that God wrote in there. Those are things that man added to help us find our way. And to a certain degree, by starting as a new area, a new passage, a new heading, With verse 22, we do a disservice to the context. Because what I want to show you is is that you cannot read verse 22 outside of verse 21. In fact, this whole section is a working out of mutual submission to one another. Paul tells all Christians to be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he gives specific examples of how this way of relating to one another works itself out in practice in the family and in the workplace. In the original language, um, it's one sentence. And and if one sentence has the same verb as as what follows it, they feel no need to repeat the verb. They just borrow it from the preceding thought. So when you read in English, wives submit to your own husbands, that word submit actually isn't there in the original language because it's borrowed. And the way it would really read is this, submitting to one another out of love, or excuse me, out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. It's connected. It's simply an example of how we are to mutually submit to one another. And it's incredibly important that we see that connection. What is even more, and actually this whole passage, if we go all the way down to chapter six, verse nine, what we see is it's a continuation of that same theme of how we honor one another. Verse nine says this, and masters, treat your servants in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. This whole passage is of God saying, we need to treat one another with respect, with honor, with putting others before ourselves because that reflects who God truly is and what he has done 
for us. It reflects the servant heart of Jesus Christ. Now, from that, we need to, to understand that all of these, these verbs that end in, in English in ing, the, uh, the, the participles, if it were, they all flow out of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Addressing or speaking flows out of the Holy Spirit being within us. It's what results when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Singing is what results from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Making melody to the Lord, giving thanks, submitting to one another is all evidence. It's all fruit of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. And that's the part I really want you to to grab a hold of is that you can't have just the practices of Scripture without the power that is designed to be in them. Most of the time when a pastor preaches on this passage, they will begin right there in verse 22 with the roles of husbands and wives. And and honestly, I'm not gonna have time to get into that today. But when we do that, we miss out that this is a work of the Holy Spirit in us. It is a spiritual work. It is not something that we do in our own strength, in our own ability. It's all about being submitted to the Lord and honoring him. Because you see, all of our relationships are designed to paint a picture of what God is like and how we can relate to him. So I want to begin with this point. The practice of God-honoring relationships must be spirit-powered. The Holy Spirit empowers the new commandment of loving one another as Jesus has loved us. Without his presence in us, we can't love in that way, in that that unselfish, sacrificial way that he loves us. He gave us this new commandment in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That means the ultimate measure, whether or not we're being filled with the Holy Spirit and then living that out in relationship is whether or not others see us loving our wives, our husbands, our family, our coworkers, our friends, our enemies, those who don't agree with us, whether we're loving them as Christ loves us. That's the evidence we're called to present and to live on an ongoing basis. And it happens when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. God in his word gives us some clear instructions about how we relate to one another and some instruction on on how we're to go about things. But God's principles without God's power is like having a car without an engine. It will still roll, but it's a great deal of work, and that's not how God designed for it to function. So if you're trying to have a marriage relationship or a parenting relationship or even a work relationship and you're trying to do it in your own strength, it's just like being out there pushing a car down the street. You're gonna get frustrated. You're gonna get exhausted because it's not about our strength and power. It's about the presence of God through his Holy Spirit in us being the power source that works through us. And the same is true in, in our relationship with the Lord, with discipleship. Too often we look at discipleship like a moral ladder that we must climb 
We see others above us and think we will never be like them. And we see some below us and pridefully rejoice that we're ahead of them. But that's not how discipleship works. Discipleship, for many, is is something that is moral, accomplishment, rather than personal. We have a tendency to depersonalize the gospel by taking Jesus and replacing him with our own efforts. And when the Holy Spirit is a forgotten God, trusting Jesus becomes a fading effort. We won't get to know him. He is present in name only. Jesus becomes an idea that we believe, not a person that we trust. Consequently, religious affection and the power of the Holy Spirit simply leak out of us and doubt and cynicism will come in because life has become a duty instead of a delight, as I shared with you a couple weeks ago. God wants you to delight in him and to have a deep, growing relationship with him. Well, we need the Spirit's power in order to accomplish what God commands us to do. But when the Holy Spirit is living within you and within me, he will produce Spirit-transformed living. The relationships that we have will change. To be filled with the Spirit is to live a life of joy, sometimes quiet, sometimes victorious. Truths about God's glory and Jesus' saving works are um, not just believe with the mind, but they create within us an inner music, an inner delight that permeates every part of who we are and every relationship that we have. But the Holy Spirit comes to us in a gentle way, as a still, small voice, in a humble way. And those who are filled with him will always display the humility and the gentleness of Jesus Christ That's one of the reasons why he tells us, he commands us to submit to one another. You see, when I'm able to live, it's not about me, it's about him, and it's about him loving others through me, then there's great freedom for the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us. When we are filled with the Spirit, we seek to do God's will because he is the one we're seeking. He is the one that we're pursuing. And this passage is written to the whole church. I know it deals with some specific types of relationships, and you may not have one of those relationships. That's okay. These are examples, first and foremost, of our relationship with God. And he's telling to the whole church, this is how we are to seek the Lord. Here here is it. When we are filled with the Spirit, We seek to do God's will because he is the one we desire and delight in. And that fleshes itself out, first of all, in our decision-making. We are to be led by the Spirit. He is the one who goes before us and directs us. And let me me give you an example of of what this, this means. The word in the Scripture for filled is a beautiful word. In Greek, the original language, it is plerora, excuse me, pleroma, I can't speak today, and it has a couple of meanings that, that apply. One is like a sponge, as I told you last week, where it kind of permeates every part of who we are. But the most powerful example of how the filling of the Holy Spirit actually works in our life is it's the same word that would be used when a sail on a ship was filled with wind. And I don't know if you know this, but 
how many of you know that the wind actually does not push a ship? Are you aware of that? Anybody? I know. How many of you think I'm crazy? (laughs) Alice thinks I'm crazy. Yeah, okay. I mean, our thought is, unless unless you've studied the physics of sailing, our thought is, well, okay, the wind comes behind the sail, fills the sail, and it pushes the boat forward, right? Now, if that were true, that would mean that the boat can only sail as fast as the wind, right? However fast the wind's going, that's as fast as it can go. Did you know that sailboats can sail faster than the wind speed? The reason that they can do that is because, and actually the fastest direction to to sail is not directly downwind or uh, with the wind. It's actually at a 45 degree angle to the wind. How crazy is that? That the wind's coming this way, and the fastest I can, I can sail is actually going this direction where it's blowing against me. The reason being, and I'll, you'll see some slides there on the screen, is because what, what's designed there is that when the wind fills the sail, it creates a low-pressure vacuum on the front side of the sail. So the wind fills that sail, and it billows. And then it, that force is offset by the keel and by the rudder, so that the ship is able to be steered. But what happens is on the front side of the sail, there's a vacuum of low air pressure, and the ship is literally pulled in the direction that the rudder is pointing it. Isn't that cool? I mean, physics just blow my mind because I never understood them. So it, it doesn't take much to blow my mind. But it's really cool, especially when you see that's how the Holy Spirit works in us. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, he doesn't drive us to do his will, but he creates a force within us that begins to open up a way for us to turn that rudder to where we can most effectively follow him. He doesn't make us do it, but he's drawing us into his will, drawing us into obedience because he loves us. It's not forced but we're drawn forward into his presence and into the accomplishment of his will. Our prayer should be that the Holy Spirit will fill the sail of my soul with his presence as I yield myself to him and I ask that you would fill the void of self and draw my life to love others as you love me. Create within me that desire, that opportunity, to really, really follow you. When the Holy Spirit is directing our life, when he fills us, he will affect our decisions because we'll want to make decisions that honor him. Secondly, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit and he is the one you're seeking in our desires, the Holy Spirit is the one who will transform us And we need to ask him not only to lead us, but to change us, to make our heart's desires like his. That's where joy is found. That's why it says in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What he means is when you learn to desire God above all else, man, you discover that the things that you really, really want that are really satisfying are the things God is providing are the doors that he is opening, the opportunities, the experiences, the relationships, because our desires have 
come to match his, and we're able to steer our life in the direction of where it will most be able to follow hard after the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, when we're filled with the Spirit, He is the one we are seeking in our devotion. This passage is written to the whole church and it concerns our communication with one another. We're to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What he's saying here is not about the style of music. All styles have validity, but it's talking about building up one another. When we're devoted to Christ, we see and we encourage one another. We seek to build them up. And that conversation goes beyond just what happens when we gather for a time together of musical worship. It should affect every part of our relationship with one another. And it is a command, not a suggestion, that we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So that brings us to a question that um, puzzled me for, for a long time. Coming out of this passage, talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit, it seems like it makes a change because now he's talking about husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and servants. Seems like he's changed subject, and yet when you read it in the original language, you realize it flows out of it. There's, there's a reason why he's emphasizing it. And the more I meditated on it, and the more I meditated especially on what he says directly in the text, that this refers to Christ and the church, I realized that each of these relationships are reflections of the relationship that we have with God. All three of them reflect something that connects between you and the Lord as you relate to him. So let's look at these pictures and think about them not in the roles that are being carried out, but in how it points to our picture of our relationship with God. The first picture is a picture of marriage. And it points to the fact that we have a Savior to love, a Savior who loved us, and it points to our deep abiding need for intimacy. Every human on the face of the earth has a deep need for intimacy. To be known, to be accepted, to be loved. We desire intimacy. And so the Apostle Paul, in writing here, uses the closest of all human relationships, a marriage where two very different beings become one, united by the Lord. And he uses that as an example of saying, this is my heart for you. I, as God, want you to have an intimate relationship with me. And I've proven just how much I want you to have an intimate relationship with me by sending my son to willingly lay down his life for you. That's how much God loves you and loves me. He was willing to give it all, not just to get you out of hell, but to draw you into an intimate relationship with him, to be one with him. That's why he's using this as an illustration here. The, the application is important, but don't miss the picture. Because if we miss the picture and we just look at the application within human roles, we'll miss something deeper, something greater. Jesus is a savior who loves us and gives himself for us. He is the source of relationship and intimacy. We have a Savior who loves us sacrificially, who will complete his work in us and for us. He cherishes you. You are his body, 
everyone who believes in him. And that's why when you read through this and it says that a husband is to, to love his wife as his own body, it's an, it's an illustration of saying Jesus loves you as his body. He cherishes it. He cherishes you. But not only does he love you in that way, but he promises to complete the work he began in you and me. When he says in verse 27 of chapter 5, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. He's speaking that to you. God's gonna build you up and he's gonna complete in you what he began in salvation. Jesus not only saves you out of love, but he will complete us and present us as holy without a flaw. And when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we come closer and closer into his presence. We then are cooperating with his work in us to transform us so that we can have an intimacy with God. By the way, when this illustration is used, the Apostle Paul didn't just make something up. He's used an illustration that appears throughout the scripture. I wanna show it to you in, in Isaiah chapter 54. This is just one place. Um, the book of Hosea would be another place where it's very strong. Listen to what it says about God and his relationship with us in Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Do you see how those two things come together? A redeemer husband. Jesus wants to redeem you, to rescue you, to buy you back from your sin, from your selfishness, from your failure, so that you can be united to him. And it doesn't matter if we're male or female, this union with him is about being connected and having intimacy with God. That's his desire for your life. It's not a religion where you just try to do all the right things. It's a relationship that he wants to be the most significant part of your life, in fact, to be your life. Jesus is our redeemer husband who rescues us, loves us, and completes us. And how are we to respond? We are to respond to his sacrificial love with submission to his plan and his purpose, with loving respect for Jesus. And we become one with him through faith in him, in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his bodily resurrection. That's the picture that's being painted here in the scripture. That's what God wants for you, intimacy with you. But the second picture is just as important. The second picture is a picture of parenting. Not only is God a savior to love, he is a father to trust. He gives us security. God is a father who cares for us and will provide, protect, correct, and promote us. 2 Corinthians 6, 18 says it this way, and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We have a father who is completely trustworthy. He does not respond impatiently to us, but he is gracious. We have a father who cares for us and will provide. He will lift us up. He will go before us. He will make sure that we become all that he desires and designed for us to be. He will help us to mature. This picture is so important 
because we're invited to be children of God, to have an individual personal relationship with God, but also together to be his children, to relate to him and to one another as brothers and sisters, united through our faith in Christ. Now, this is why I mentioned the distortion. Like I said, maybe, maybe you've gone through a, a horrible relationship. The tendency will be to view God through that lens, through that bowl of reality that you experienced rather than who he says he is. Maybe you had a harsh, overbearing father or mother And it's really hard for you to picture God as a father because you feared your father. Or your father was distant and absent. That's where we need to make sure that our understanding is based not on what we think or on what we've experienced, but on who God says he is. What he tells us in his word. Get an accurate picture of him an accurate picture of reality, not just the distorted lens that sin produces in us. And by the way, that's incredibly convicting to us as well. When we look at our relationships from the standpoint of of not seeing ourselves just as the roles that we fulfill, but recognizing that we are representing to others an image of what God is like, that's huge. As a dad with with four children, the weight of thinking about, I need to show my children the father heart of God. I, I don't just need to love them and guide them and provide for them. I need to show them a glimpse of just how good God is. That I need to love my wife in such a way that she sees a glimpse of how good God is. And she as a wife does such a great job of showing me how we're to respond and support and submit and build up the Lord and honor him. That's what is being revealed through these relationships, how we are to relate to God first and foremost. And here's the thing. Maybe maybe as you think about that, maybe the Lord will speak to you about some areas where you've blown it. You've not shown in your human relationships a reflection of God. Several years ago, um, I, had, I had traveled back to our, our home area in, in Indiana uh, for Christmas, and, and I don't even remember why, but for some reason, Becky and the kids were, were still uh, living in a different part of the country, and I had traveled there to see my, my parents, and, and during that trip, uh, I had hoped to see my brother. My brother was 14 years older than me, and, um, and, and so we weren't like hangout brothers together, you know, because like I was a nerdy little kid and he was an adult, um, but we were, we were close. And for some reason, he wasn't able to come at that, that Christmas, and so I didn't get to see him. And on the way home, I sat in the airport and I wrote him a letter because the Lord just convicted me of how poor of a brother I had been to Roger, my brother. He convicted me of how I had gotten so caught up in my own things, in my own life, my own family. 
I didn't even know when he went through a divorce until I got an invitation to his new wedding. That's how disconnected I had become. But what was more significant was I realized that as a brother, I had not shown him a very good example of God's love, of Jesus' love. As a Christian, I had not helped build his belief by loving him the way Jesus loved me. And so I asked his forgiveness about several different things, and I talked about the distortion of the image that I presented of what God was like, and we shared a a common distortion in a different relationship that we share that had been very hard on him especially. And that letter, that asking of forgiveness for not rightly reflecting the Lord was so significant. In fact, I, I can tell you it was the most important letter I ever wrote. He called me after he got the letter and we had a wonderful conversation. And he forgave me. He had some questions about, about God and about our relationship. And that was so significant because just a couple of weeks later, he was killed. But God gave me that opportunity to ask forgiveness for how poorly in my relationship with him I'd reflected the Lord so that I know he knew at least a glimpse of how much God loved him. And I'm so thankful for that. Our relationships, God takes seriously. He calls us to be right reflections of him and the passage goes on, and, and, it, and it not only talks about parents and child, and, but it gives another example, a picture of a master and a servant, which is a Lord to serve. You see, our Savior who loves us gives us intimacy. Our Father whom we can trust gives us security. But the Lord to whom we serve gives us purpose in all that we do. In each of those areas, we have great need, and the Lord is saying, this is who I want to be to you. In fact, this is who I am. It's simply up to you to discover, this is who I am. The Lord is the one we serve, and he gives meaning to our work, to our life, to our purpose. That's why he says in the scripture in Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. In each of these three illustrations that he's giving here, it's showing us an aspect of our relationship with God, a God who loves us and wants to have intimacy for us, who's proven his love as a savior, a parent that we can trust no matter what we face to always be there with us. And a Lord who gives meaning to everything that we do, purpose in our life. They fit together in such a way to draw us into deeper intimacy with the Lord. And when the followers of Jesus love one another and live out that love in submitting to one another in the power of the Holy Spirit, all will know we are his disciples. When people see marriages 
as a true sacrificial love and respect, they will see a picture of God's love for us and the intimacy we can enjoy with him. When people see parents who graciously care for and guide their children to become all that they were created to be, they'll see a picture of God as a loving father who will care for them and promote them as well. When people see leaders treating their followers with respect and honor and who are genuinely concerned for their interests, they'll see a picture of the Lord who has good plans for them as well. God is a husband to his people, a father to his children, and he is Lord of all. In a moment, we're gonna celebrate what's called the the Lord's Supper or communion. And it is a picture of God's covenant with us, his promise to us. Jesus Christ, who willingly offered his life to not only be your savior, but so that you could be united with God, he is represented in the bread and in the cup. He willingly gave his body to be broken for us to be offered up as a living sacrifice. He gave himself for you as represented in the bread. He willingly allowed his blood to be poured out for the forgiveness of our sins and to clothe us with righteousness so that we could become one with him. And so the, the, the picture that we have in the bread and the, of the cup is one of intimacy, of forgiveness, of cleansing, and it's something that we do together because together we are brothers and sisters. We are children of God because we have a father who loves us so much that he's provided absolute security for you and for me. He's removed the barrier that separated us from him of sin through his son, Jesus Christ. When we come to the table, we're also reminded that he is Lord that we're not to take of the bread and of the cup in a light manner or unworthily without first examining our own hearts and seeing if there's something in our relationship, a sin, a habit that we're pursuing that is pushing us away from God and not honoring and respecting who he truly is. So as we come to receive of the bread and of the cup, do so today remembering that the Lord God Jesus is your husband. You're united with him. We have a father who gives you security, who welcomes you as his sons and daughters, and we have a Lord that we serve who has a plan and a purpose for your life. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would, you would take these words and, and Lord, that you would, you would correct them, you would purify them. Lord, as they sink into people's hearts, Lord, would you speak? Holy Spirit, would you, would you take what is accurate and, and penetrate into our hearts so that we hear exactly what we need to hear and then change us? Lord, give us the faith to follow you. Lord, for those who are here today that do not yet know you, Lord, would today be the day where they see a glimpse of your love and they're willing to simply call upon the name of our Savior, our Redeemer, Jesus, and say, Lord, would you save me? I, I wanna be one with you. I wanna be united to you. Lord, give them the courage to do that. 
And Lord, would you examine our hearts, examine our relationships? Lord, the, the great thing is, is even when we fail, you offer incredible forgiveness if we confess our sins and not only forgive us, but you cleanse us of all unrighteousness and clothe us with the righteousness of Christ. Lord, help us in our human relationships to rightly reflect who you are and to recognize how important that is because we, we are a living gospel that people will read oftentimes long before they ever open a Bible or walk into a church. Make us accurate representations of what you are like. Let others see the reality of a God who is immeasurably good. Thank you, Lord. As we come before the table, where we remember what you have done, Jesus, you say in your word that you took the bread and you blessed it. And Lord, we ask your blessing upon this bread. Let it be a reminder, even as we eat of it, of what you have done for us, of your giving yourself sacrificially for us. As we taste of it, Lord, let us taste and see just how good you are. Lord, you also took the cup and you gave thanks. And Lord, we give you thanks for Jesus. We give you thanks for his willing sacrifice we give you thanks for the new covenant, the new promise that you have made to us through him that we can be united with you. As we drink of the cup, let us be reminded that we are one with you, that you have cleansed us of sin and clothed us with your righteousness. And Lord, we ask that you would help us then to live as a right reflection of that. Thank you, Lord for our time together. Thank you for each and every person here. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.